We come now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we continue to make our way through this epistle, verse by verse. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 16 in a few minutes. And here the Apostle Paul is dealing with issues concerning Christian marriage. And I'm thankful for the very positive response that I've received from so many of you and others that are listeners on the internet and so forth, because these are very sensitive issues, as you know. Whenever you talk about marriage and singleness and sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife, they're very sensitive matters, but very important practical matters that the Word of God addresses very clearly. Now, as we approach our text once again this morning, let me remind you of the context, because this makes it all come alive. The staggering levels of sexual immorality in Corinth, combined with the various kinds of pagan marriage arrangements that I went through last week, really provided the perfect context for utter confusion. And then what you have are Gentiles who are believers who come to Christ, all right, and they come into the church, and for many of them, they, th- they thought, you know what, the real answer here is celibacy. Celibacy is spiritual, even in marriage. So no more sexual intimacy, sweetheart. It's over now that I'm a believer. So some of them were thinking that way, and Paul has to address that. And others were Jewish believers, and for them, it was just the opposite. For them, they were saying, you have to get married. It, it's, it's ungodly not to get married because God has told us that he wants us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so you've got these two opposing opinions. And then on top of that, you've got the feminist movement that was thriving during that first century in the Greco-Roman world. A lot of women were fed up with being treated as property, and rightfully so. So they decided to act and dress like men. Many of them did. They refused to bear. Some of them did. Refused to bear and raise children. Many of them competed with men in tests of strength. This is you might say, the, the origin of women wrestlers, because they had women wrestlers back then. They had women that would go wild boar hunting, wearing helmets and topless. You know, so it was just, just nutty types of stuff that was going on. And so some of this mindset gets brought into the church. And still today, you will see uh, women who blur the lines between masculinity and femininity, And uh, there's all kinds of problems that that will surface when that happens, especially when you bring it into the church. Now, of course, Satan loves this kind of confusion, especially in the context of marriage, because he knows that God has ordained and promised to bless two institutions, the church and marriage. And in both situations, Christ is to be the head. And when he's not, everything just spirals out of control. So naturally, Satan is going to focus his energies when it comes to confusion and deception in the areas of marriage and the church. And of course, we're looking at the issue of marriage here today. Now, I know that some of you are single. Some of you are single, and it's wonderful. And for others, it's very frustrating. And for others of you, you are married, and you're frustrated. You might even be married and wish you were single. That's a really tough spot to be in. Or you may be a believer 
and you're married to an unbeliever, and you're, you're wondering, how do I deal with all of this? Well, of course, the culture tells you, hey, j- just do whatever you think you need to do, because if, if it feels good, do it. There are no moral absolutes. And so for singles, for example, maybe what you need to do is, is just shack up with somebody, live with them, kind of see if you would want to get married someday. Or, you know, better yet, marriage doesn't work. After all, about 50% of all marriages fall apart and end a divorce. So, you know, just, just live together. So you have all of this chaos going on, even in our culture. The same thing was happening back then. So the key question is, what does God say? about singleness? What does he say about marriage? What does he say about divorce? What does he say about remarriage? Those were the types of issues back then that people were dealing with. So the Corinthian believers, as you will recall, they wrote to the Apostle Paul wanting him to answer these questions, and it was a letter that was probably delivered by Stephanus and by Fortunatus and and, uh, Achaicus, as we read in chapter 16, verse 17. And so now Paul is answering them, giving them the guidelines regarding all of these issues, especially concerning celibacy and marriage that we looked at last week. But now he's going to continue, and that brings us to our text. First of all, he speaks concerning singles. Will you notice verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 7? He says, but I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Now, let me explain. The term unmarried is, that is used here describes more than a single person. The term is also used to describe a divorced woman. We know this because he uses the term in verses 10 through 11 to refer to those who were previously married but are not widows people who are now single, but they're not virgins. So the unmarried refers to a divorced woman. This is who Paul is addressing here. Now, evidently, these folks were wondering about remarriage. You know, can I get remarried? And his answer is really twofold. First, he says it is good for them if they remain even as I. In other words, it's, it's good for them if they want to remain single. That's okay. There's, no, there's nothing more spiritual about being, being single or being married, I should say, which refuted the Jewish belief. You know, the Jews were saying, no, 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 you've got to be married. He said, no, no, no. If you want to stay single, that's fine. So he's merely restating what he has said previously. And re- you will recall, because Paul was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, he, was, he, w- he would have been married at one time because you had to be married in order to be a part of the Sanhedrin. So he puts himself in this same category, and he says it, it, it is good for them if they remain even as I. Now, we don't know if Paul was divorced or if he was just a widower. We don't know that for sure, but we know now he's single. Now, why is it good to remain even as I, as a single person? Well, it's because of the autonomy that that provides to be able to serve Christ, especially during uh, a time when persecution was mounting And poverty was the norm for many believers. So having the added responsibility of a wife and children can be a great hindrance in dangerous regions of of the world. And and that's that's true even to this day. Verse 26, he says, I think then that is good that that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. And then he elaborates more on this in verses 32 through 35. 
So he's saying those of you who are divorced, those of you who are widows, you've lost your spouse through death, it's good to stay single. But he gives a second answer. He says in verse 9, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better, better to marry than to burn with passion. The Greek helps us understand through the, through the grammar. It's the idea of continually burning or, or being inflamed with sexual desire. You know, if, if that's you, then you need to get married. That's his point. Now, <clears throat> this applies to a broader context that is very important. So I want to digress here for a moment. So just keep your thoughts here, kind of your finger here on this, on this point. Let me, let, let me address this whole issue of burning with sexual desire and kind of lay it out practically for you. I've seen very often young singles go off to the mission field and they think everything's going to be fine and it ends up being a disaster because of this very issue. You want to be very careful with that. You can't serve Christ when you're constantly fighting sexual passions. That, that is not a good thing to do. In fact, more and more missions... Uh, refuse to take singles for more than a couple of weeks. And I think that's wise. It's for that very reason. And then there's another danger. You'll have couples that will fall in love. And they will maybe even get engaged. And then they'll wait months, maybe even a year or more, before they get married. They're planning the wedding. And folks, I can't tell you how many times that ends in, in disaster sexually. It is so hard to stay pure over that period of time. And worse yet, for parents to allow teens to spend lots of time with their boyfriend or their girlfriend when, when they're not ready to consider marriage is, is very, very dangerous. In fact, I would say humbly it's foolish you know, you're playing with fire. I mean, let's face it. Young adults are a 90-pound gland and a 100-pound body, if I can put it that way. You know what I'm saying, all right? And so they lack spiritual maturity. They don't know how to deal with all of that. Most of them are ruled by the flesh. And I would submit to you, parents, if you heard the locker room talk with the boys you would not want your daughter going out with most of these guys. So you want to be very, very careful with that. Do you really think a young 17-year-old boy and a 17-year-old girl can suppress their sexual desires and remain pure if they're allowed and even encouraged to spend long periods of time alone together? I mean, you're playing with fire. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust, Paul tells us in Romans 13, 15. And frankly, the consequences to any kind of sexual activity and dating will be, not might be, but it will be disastrous. I've seen it. I've had to deal with it for years. There's guilt. There's shame. At times, there's unwanted pregnancies. At times, there's diseases. Certainly, there's feelings of confusion and obligation to get married because they've been involved and so forth. Now, this is especially disastrous when one of the, of, the, of the party is a believer and the other is a non-believer. God's never going to bless that kind of a union. And on another note, it's very hard for most of those who are divorced 
or widowed to stay single because loneliness and sexual temptation can be overwhelming. And then there's the temptation, therefore, to start lowering the standard of who you're going to marry. And then the first person that makes eyes at you, you, you're, you're in love, you know. So would you, would you like to have dinner with me this, this Saturday night? I do! No, no, I didn't say you want to get married. Oh, oh, yeah, just, you know, do you want to go out for dinner? Well, yeah, I'll marry you and I'll go out for dinner. You know, I mean, that, that's kind of how I've seen this. It's a dangerous thing. So you want to be very careful. The other danger here is, is selfishness and desperation that can cause you to marry the wrong person. So easy to fall in lust rather than fall in love. And you can unwittingly become a parasite looking for a host. Kind of like a tick looking for a dog, if I can use a rather gross analogy here. Rather than praying for someone that you can give yourself to, that you can minister to in self-sacrificing love, you look for someone to attach yourself to. And too many relationships, especially marriages, are built upon mutual manipulation rather than ministry. Two people trying to get the other, the, each other to meet their personal needs rather than trying to meet the needs of the others. I mean, just think of the kids you see in the malls, you know, hanging all over each other. I mean, it's, it, what you've got there are two ticks and no dog. You know, it's just, it, it's, it's just not going to work. And they end up falling in love. They get married. And what happens? Well, within no time, they are divorced. And so often, even in marriage vows, what, what, what can subtly happen is, is you stand there with, with, with your spouse and you say, you know, honey, I, I love you so much. You, you, make me, you make me feel so good. You, 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 just, you just meet my needs. You make me feel like a man. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you an opportunity to keep doing that for the rest of your life. You see how subtle the manipulation sets in. So what should you do? You're trying to find the right person to marry. Young people, I I really want you to hear this. I want to give you four things. Again, this is part of my little digression, but I feel it's important because I have to deal with this so often. Four things. Run, walk, kneel, and ask. All right? Very briefly, let me tell you what I mean. What should you do if you're looking for the right person to marry? Number one, you need to run. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Present imperative. Run from it. Keep on running from it. Don't stop running. No doubt Paul had in mind there Joseph, um, Joseph's example of fleeing from Potiphar's wife, as you will recall in Genesis uh, 39. Likewise, 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul says to, to Timothy, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So if you're looking for the right person to marry, don't focus on the physical. Focus on the spiritual. So many times I will ask a young person, So tell me about this, this new person that, that, that you're dating. Oh, he's just wonderful. Oh, great. Tell me about him. Oh, he's, and they start describing all these external things. And not once do they describe any spiritual things. And that's what's really important. But along with this, just never put yourself in compromising positions. Station guards around your, your, your heart. 
Guard your thoughts, your eyes. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. By the way, married men, you need to do the same. Never put yourself in a position that might cause your wife to be embarrassed or hurt were she standing right there with you. Moreover, remember, God sees it all, doesn't he? So don't grieve the spirit. Don't forfeit blessing in your life. Don't put yourself in the path of divine chastening. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So, run. Secondly, walk. In other words, get serious about walking by the Spirit. As Galatians 5 talks about, get serious about committing yourself to walking by the spirit. And when you do that, what happens so that you will not carry out the desires of the flesh because they're at enmity with one another. Get serious about that. Be the kind of person that you would want to marry. That's what God honors. Psalm 84, verse 11, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Be that kind of person. Run, walk, thirdly, kneel. This speaks of prayer. Pray that God will bless you with the right kind of person. Young people, this is especially important for you. Ask others to join you in praying with you. Psalm 37, 4 is one of my favorite passages in, in this regard. There, the Spirit of God says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, take delight in his word, in his law, in his promises, in his love, in his purposes. And the point is, when he alone is the object of your delight, what he's saying is he will give you the proper desires to desire. That's an amazing thought. When he alone is that object of delight, his desires will become your desires. And he will see to it that that will happen. He will help you to want the right thing. He will help you to want what you need most. And that will become what you want most, which will also be what he wants most for you. And by the way, if you're wanting to find the right person, don't you think God wants that to happen? Well, of course he does. And so ask him to lead you in that direction. And then... Fourthly, is the word ask. Ask others about the person you're considering, all right? This can really avert a lot of disaster. Folks, hormones can cloud judgment. Proverbs eleven fourteen: where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. It could be translated safety. The word counsel there was a Hebrew nautical term. Uh, used for steering a ship. So the wisdom of godly advisors can help you navigate the, the treacherous waters of finding the right person. Now, this, by the way, presupposes that your counselors are wise. Young people, don't go to your friends necessarily. Go to people who have spiritual discernment, have a track record. Don't even go to Aunt Agnes unless you're sure that Aunt Agnes is a godly woman, you know. Go to people that, that know and love you. 
I've, I've got a lot of friends in Africa, and it's interesting. If you are a young man, for example, in Africa, and you want to pursue a young lady, uh, even if you're in the same village, but many times it's somebody in another village, uh, what you have to do is get uh, approval from that young woman's family, but not just the family. The, the family has to go to the elders and the elders even go to the community where that young man lives from. So, I mean, they vet the young guy, all right? And if the family and the elders and the community say, no, nah, this is not the kind of guy you want to marry, then he has to stay away from her. In fact, if he's caught snooping around, he can be killed. Now, I'm not suggesting we do that, but the point is, <laughs> we need to move a lot closer to that than where we are. That's my point. By the way, at Calvary Bible Church, you will, uh, I, I won't perform a, a wedding unless there's been premarital counseling. And we, we not only suggest that, we, we, we suggest pre-engagement counseling. Don't even get engaged until we've really had an opportunity to help you navigate these, these waters. And, and I even like pre-relationship counseling, which, by the way, many of you have done. I've, I've talked with a lot of you. You've come to me and you, you, you've, you've, you've asked me about a person and, and, or the other elders, and this is good. By the way, this is especially important in this age of Internet dating, these dating sites where, you, I mean, you have no idea who these, people, who these people really are. And you can learn real quick what Photoshop is all about, you know. I mean, they can make, with Photoshop, you can make Quasimodo look like, you know, Denzel Washington or whatever. By the way, Quasimodo is the hunchback of Notre Dame, in case you had forgotten that. So how do you know about these people? Well, you, you need to be able to, 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 to vet them as best you can and get other people to get involved. So many times they say, oh, yeah, wonderful Christian person. Oh, that, that, that's great. I'm so glad to hear that. Then that person won't mind me having a conversation with them to ask them about their walk with Christ and their understanding of the gospel. Sometimes people will ask me, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to this person, but, but before we move any further, I'm just curious. What do, what do you say? What do you know about the family? What do you know about this man or woman? And sometimes I, I, I will say, or some, some of the other elders will say, well, that's a great choice. And other times they'll say, well, that's a good choice, but here's some cautions. And then there are times where I will say, you have got to be kidding me. So, run, walk, kneel, and ask. Now, let's go back to the text. Again, if you've been divorced or your spouse has died, if you don't have self-control, the obvious implication is that, that many people don't. Then, let them marry, he says, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. J.B. Phillips puts it this way, to be tortured by unsatisfied desire. It's another way of translating that Greek text. And Paul knows that that, that burning desire can explode into a roaring inferno of sexual immorality, which can cause all kinds of problems. And that's why he said earlier in verse 2, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. So first he addresses singles, and then secondly, concerning the married. Notice verse 10, but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. 
Now, here he's speaking to married believers, okay, as opposed to his instructions later in verses 12 through 16, where he deals with a believer that's married to an unbeliever. Here, he's, he's addressing married believers, and, and for example, he's addressing a believing wife who maybe decides she, she wants out of the marriage, that she's made a mistake, that she's now thinking that, well, my, if I were single, I could, I could serve the Lord much better than being in this, in this uh, tent arrangement that I have that was so common in those days. I, I've, I've found someone better, someone that I like better. And, of course, with rampant divorce in those, in those days, that would have been a, a, a serious issue that they had to deal with. And so Paul gives the instruction, the wife should not leave her husband. And he says, not I, meaning it's not new revelation, but the Lord has has addressed this. Remember back in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 5, Jesus said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it, was, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So he's using this as an example here. He's explaining how God allowed the, the gracious concession of divorce to the innocent spouse who's trapped in the bondage of, of marital unfaithfulness. And certainly it is a terrible place to be where you have an immoral spouse that refuses to repent, refuses to be faithful. And, and Jesus states this again uh, in, in, um, in Matthew 5, uh, 31 through 32. So permit, divorce is permitted in the case of this hard-hearted immorality. Now, later on here in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7, he's going to offer um, another exception that's illustrative of the kind of behavior that violates the covenant of marriage. But here, Paul makes it real clear that divorce is not an, ex- not an option except for adultery. Now, by the way, he doesn't say you have to divorce But if the spouse is sexually involved with another person, that is certainly an option. Remember Malachi 2 and verse 16, God says that he hates divorce. He hates divorce, but he permits it because of the hard-heartedness of the people. It's fascinating that God himself gave a writ of divorcement to unfaithful Israel. Really interesting concept. In Jeremiah 3 and verse 8, We read, and I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. This is an incredible analogy that reflects upon God's righteous and holy character. Because of Israel's continued unrepentant spiritual adultery, God divorced her. And indeed, at times, divorcing a wicked, idolatrous person is the right and godly course of action. You will recall Joseph was going to do that with Mary when he didn't understand what was going on, and he was still called a righteous man. As a footnote, because I know somebody's going to ask me about this, this poses a serious problem for those who wrongly interpret 
um, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2, where an elder is, the qualifications for an elder is that he must be the husband of one wife. Some will say, well, that means he can't be divorced. Others say he's got to be married. Others say it has to do with polygamy. I don't think it means any of that. I mean, if, if it meant that, that he can't be divorced, then God himself couldn't be an elder because God gave Israel rid of divorcement. By the way, that text it, it, in the Greek, it, it says that he has to be a one-woman man. It's speaking of sexual purity, marital fidelity, and so forth. Now, back to our text concerning two believers married to one another. Verse 11, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So he's saying, don't, don't leave your, if it's a tent companionship or whichever ones of the various forms of so-called marriage they had then, don't do that. Stay committed. Now, if she does leave without, or he leaves for that matter, but if she does leave without biblical grounds for divorce, Paul says, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. In other words, to remarry someone with no biblical grounds of divorce, and you just abandon that marital relationship, when you do that, you commit adultery. God says, don't do that. Because from God's perspective, that union has never really been severed. That's the point. Now, if you do, if you do that, I want you to remain unmarried. And likewise, it is important, I might add, for for innocent spouses to stay in a position of reconciliation as long as you possibly can. Pray, seek help, do everything you can to to reconcile. And that's where, and we've done this many times, you come to the elders and we begin to pursue uh, the individual. We've, we've had to do it with women as well as with men. We've had to pursue it through church discipline. And sometimes we've had to literally put someone out of the church. And, and I remember in one case, it was about two years later, the woman repented and came back. And there was a, a wonderful time of reconciliation with the marriage and with the church and so forth. But, but stay in that position until such time as that adulterous partner uh, remarries or whatever, and then you're free to remarry. And again, remember now, back in, in those days, there are records that shows that, that people get divorced 25 up to 30 times. It's almost like every year. They're just getting divorced all the time. These are young people, young people. So this was common practice. But Paul is saying, no, it, but if you do, don't get remarried. Because many of them, I'm sure, had someone else on the side, you know. And so this kind of puts a stop to that. If you think all you need to do, if the marriage doesn't work out, you just get a divorce, then you begin to look for someone else that you like a little bit better. Better yet, be reconciled to your husband. I might add that this is another place where run, walk, kneel, and ask applies. You know, humble yourself, deal with your contribution to the failure. Realize that God can rekindle the fire of a broken marriage. God wants you to thrive in your marriage, not just survive in it. I've seen many marriages rise out of the ash heap of, of infidelity and abuse and, and become a marvelous testimony of, of God's forgiveness and reconciliation and grace. And in this modern era where... Divorcing your spouse is so prevalent just because 
you don't feel fulfilled or you don't feel happy or, you know, that type of thing. That's just absolutely wrong. Folks, if I can put it this very simply, your happiness has nothing to do with fulfilling your vows before God in marriage. God wants you to be happy. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman. Happy is. But happiness can never occur apart from holiness. And so that's where you have to begin. Cultivate and weed and water your own garden. Don't go out and try to plant a new one. Watch what God would do. And some will ask, well, what if, you're, what if I've divorced and remarried and, 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 and my, my divorce wasn't biblical? What should I do? Well, confess it. Stay married. Honor the Lord where you are right now. And let's move on. So, he's spoken now concerning singles and married believers. And finally, concerning a believer married to an unbeliever. Verse 12, but to the rest I say not the Lord. Now, let me pause there. It's not like he's contradicting the Lord here. Paul is dealing with issues that the Lord did not address in his earthly ministry regarding believers who want to stay married to non-Christians. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. So the issue here is what if you're a believer married to a pagan idolater, for example? You know, some of them no doubt were saying, well, hey, wait a minute. After all, we're not to be unequally yoked. Oh, my goodness, I've come to Christ, and I've got an unbeliever here, and I, I'm unequally yoked. Second Corinthians 6.14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Oh, what am I going to do? Now, again, remember the chaotic context here. People are coming to faith in Christ, and some are saying, well, no more sexual intimacy. Others are are saying, well, you need to leave him or her because they're an unbeliever, and, and you need to dwell with another man or another woman. And for the most part, marriage was not something legal. They're just kind of living together. So don't think in our terms where they you know, go file for divorce, and they have divorce proceedings and all of, all of that type of thing. So it's a lot of confusion here for them. So what should I do? Well, Paul is saying, if the unbeliever consents to live with you, then stay married. Verse 12, do not send them away. Verse 13, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Now, no doubt some of them were saying, well, my goodness, is God going to bless my children? Am I doomed to a life of misery here, or worse yet, divine chastening? And he's saying, no, I want you to stay married. And here's the divine rationale in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So, to be sure, for a believer to be married to an unbeliever can be discouraging, but it will never be defiling. It will never be defiling. The very opposite is true. You see, the unbelieving spouse, what Paul is saying here is the unbelieving spouse is sanctified through the believing spouse. Now, sanctify here does not refer to salvation. Otherwise, they would not be called unbelievers. Sanctify, of course, the word means to, to, to be to set apart. To, it, it, the word holy comes from this, from the same Greek root. 
And in this case, it is the family, it is the marriage that are now set apart for temporal blessing, not eternal blessing. Beloved, never underestimate the sanctifying power of a godly mother or a godly father father in an ungodly home. And I know some of you have come out of those kinds of homes. It's an amazing thing to behold. One Christian in a pagan home will result in enormous blessing on that family as God blesses that believer in the midst of all of that chaos, as as God blesses that believer and helps them be salt and light in a corrupt and a dark home. I mean, I've seen in many cases where God has used one godly grandmother to break the entire cycle of generations of ungodliness. And that's the point that you see here. And think about it. As believers, we have wisdom from God, right? We have the indwelling spirit of God. We have ministering spirits. We are children of the Heavenly Father. There's all of these blessings that we have that we can bring into an ungodly family. But let me ask you this. Why do you think God continues to, to protect and preserve America despite all of its wickedness? I would argue it's because there's so many believers here. We are the salt and the light. We help preserve and we help give light to this dark, dark culture. It's the same reason God was willing to bless Sodom. Remember in Genesis 18? You recall how Abraham was concerned about his family Lot and, and, and Lot and his family. So Abraham pleaded with God to spare the city if just 50 righteous people could be found. And God says, okay, but couldn't find that many. So he starts lowering the number. He reduced the number to 45. Eh, not enough. Not, not, there's not 45. Well, okay, how about 40? How about 30? How about 10? Well, it still wasn't enough. But the point is, God preserved them just because of Lot's family. If I can provide another note of comfort. God's protection over a believer's children continues even after divorce. When kids are in a wicked environment. And certainly it is a heartbreaking thing for a divorced Christian mother or father to have joint custody of a child with a wicked spouse. But it's amazing to see how God in his infinite power and love can protect and save those children. So be confident in that. Now back to Paul's words concerning a believer married to an unbeliever. Yet, he says, if the unbelieving one leaves, korzetai in Greek, means to leave, to separate. And the present tense here indicates that it's, it's kind of a continuing process here. There, there's this ongoing process of separating from that covenantal relationship. What should you do? Well, let him leave. It's a command. Let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And here we have a gracious provision for spouses that are caught in the prison. It's not a marriage. It's a prison where the unbelieving spouse has absolutely no desire to be in a loving, covenantal, marital relationship with his or her spouse. There's no, there's no covenantal love. There, there's no oneness. There's no peace. It's just bondage and war. And it gradually results in desertion. And often that occurs even in the home over a long period of time. 
And God grants a concession here, a provision of releasing the believer from that kind of bondage. You're not forced to stay. And again, it's a command, let him go, for God has called us to peace. Now, this is more than an unbeliever just filing for divorce papers. Some people want to simplify it, which, by the way, again, was utterly foreign to the culture of that day. This speaks of an unbelieving spouse who has so violated what should be a covenantal relationship that that a desertion, an abandonment, uh, a, a separation is taking place. Sometimes it takes place completely and they're, they're gone, which does not always mean, as I say, that the believer or that that unbeliever leaves the home. I've known many men who are unbelievers. They, they want to stay in the home because they want that wife to be their slave. Now, we must understand here that Christ's teaching on adultery and divorce and Paul's instruction on desertion and divorce reflect God's covenantal design for marriage. I want you to think about this for a moment. You will recall from our previous times that, that this covenant of marriage has essentially six purposes. They're all P's, remember? Procreation, pleasure, provision, partnership, which refers to both spiritual and, and physical partnership, the mutual edification of a husband and a wife pursuing the will of the Lord, and purity, marriage protects against fornication and adultery, and picture, a picture of Christ's sacrificial covenantal love for his bridal church. So the, the, the marriage covenant is designed to picture all of this. These are the purposes of it. And, and when a spouse violates these covenantal purposes through unrepentant adultery or desertion, th- this irreparable violation of covenantal love, God graciously provides the provision of divorce. Now, some will ask, are there other violations of the marriage covenant that are not specifically mentioned in the New Testament that may constitute biblical grounds for divorce. I believe there are. I believe there are other sins that rise to the same level of covenantal unfaithfulness as adultery and desertion. And many times they're they're included. For example, and I'm, I'm giving you examples of things that I have dealt with on numerous occasions. Unrepentant addiction to pornography, alcohol and drug abuse, physical abuse, alienation within the home and family where a spouse wants nothing to do with the other mate, forsaking the home for long periods of time unnecessarily, refusing to engage in sexual intimacy, refusing to bear or even care for children, refusing to work and support the family, illicit and illegal activities that threaten the safety of the family. I've, I've, I've dealt with, for example, Christian wives in an un- in an unchristian marriage, we're married to an unbeliever, who were forced to be involved in gang activities, forced to be involved in shoplifting. Um, a couple of situations where the wife was forced to cover up, they were involved in the mafia. Another example, involvement in occultic activities or cults or other demonic activities that harm the families. I've had husbands that would force their Christian wives and Christian kids to be involved in satanic rituals and those types of things. Now, we can only imagine the kind of wicked scenarios that that existed in Corinth, especially with women who had come to Christ and they're married to, to, to wicked men. But back then, like today... Eventually, the men will, will, will physically leave, but for years they may stay in the relationship. 
and use the wife as a slave. Now, to be sure, any violation of the marriage covenant is heartbreaking. But they are especially wicked and long-lasting in situations like this. And they're, and they're devastating. They bring untold bondage. They bring misery. They bring heartache upon the believing spouse. And the impact on the children can be catastrophic. Often it results in violence or stress-induced disease, in poverty, and a myriad of problems for children. And worse yet, God's purposes in the covenant of marriage are mocked. And for these reasons, God is merciful. The innocent spouse is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to speak to, to peace. In other words, that spouse is not required to stay bound in an ungodly union. And I might add that whatever the sinful violations of the marital covenant, you always want to involve the elders of the church. We've done this so many times. You want to come and engage us in counseling. We, we, we want to be lovingly kind and and forthright to the unbelieving spouse, but we want to confront the situation, do everything that we can to seek reconciliation. Many times it moves through church discipline. And if there's no repentance, if there's no reconciliation, then the church needs to be here to protect the innocent party and to somehow dissolve the marriage in a way that is orderly and God-honoring. Now, what about remarriage? Well, whenever there are biblical grounds for divorce, in other words, whenever it's a legitimate divorce is permitted, marriage is, or remarriage is assumed. Romans 7 and verse 3, we, we see there's permission for a widow or widower to remarry because they are no longer joined, the text says, or bound to the deceased partner. And by implication, the same is true here in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. The innocent spouse is no longer bound. They're not under that bondage. Also, in 1 Timothy 5, I don't have time to to go there long, but just let me hit this briefly. There, Paul addresses widows. Uh, The term charos is used. Um, It refers to one having suffered loss or one who's been left alone. And that term there refers to young women who have lost their husbands, possibly through death, possibly through desertion or divorce or imprisonment. And he encourages them to remarry. And he does so for two reasons. Number one, because of their sensual desires. And number two, due to their immaturity, he says, I, I, I want you to, to avoid being idle and going around from house to house, gossiping and acting like busybodies, talking about things that are not proper dimensions. I want you to get married. So to argue that the Bible can permit divorce, but it never allows for remarriage, causes enormous problems for texts like these. I mean, what shall these women do if they're permitted, if, if they're forbidden to, to pursue their God-ordained roles as wives and as mothers? Are they to assume that they all have the gift of celibacy? Well, of course not. And Paul tells these young women to, to remarry. And in fact, he doesn't even want them on the benevolent roles. He wants them to, to remarry. The church couldn't even afford to care for all of them. Now, some will argue there are no grounds for divorce. I understand that, that you should stay with your unbelieving spouse. It doesn't matter. You either stay with them. It's an opportunity for evangelism. God has placed you there. God can use you to win that person to Christ. Well, yeah, but there are other factors to look at. I think the scripture argues that if you're in bondage in such cases, God has called you to peace. And again, I think there's a gracious provision there. 
I've spent literally thousands of hours over my life dealing with the unimaginable atrocities that occur in marriages and families, things that you would not believe if I were to tell you. And if it is possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men, Paul tells us, but there are limits. And besides, Paul goes on to say in verse 16 as we close this morning, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Folks, marriage was never meant to be the context for evangelism. Certainly it can take place there, but that's not its primary purpose. And the likelihood of you winning that person to Christ is very, very slim, especially in hostile situations. When an unbeliever wants nothing to do with that covenantal relationship, then it's time, shall we say, to bury the dead. But it has to be the last resort, and that's why you want to to seek help in all of this. Now, in closing, I know that, that many of you have been divorced. Probably half of you in this room have been divorced. I understand that. Some were biblical, some weren't. Life can be scrambled eggs, can it? I mean, you just can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You may feel guilt. You, you may harbor resentment or bitterness. But I want you to rejoice in where, you are, where you're at And just honor the Lord. Walk with him where you're at. And if you're currently in a difficult situation in your marriage or even in your singleness, you don't know how to proceed, please ask for help. Come to me. Come to the other elders. We would love to help you, help shepherd you through this. We know that he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up our wounds, right? It's easy to feel as though God has abandoned you. But in reality, he hasn't. And this can be an opportunity for you to experience the presence and the power of God in a very unique way. I think of Isaiah 42 and verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So let us help you. Let us come alongside you and shepherd you. Very practical, right? Very real issues back in the first century as they are today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that provide clarity to us in the midst of just living out life in a fallen world, even with our unredeemed humanness still nagging at us in various ways. I pray that what we have studied here today can be applied in ways that truly bring blessing and encouragement and even conviction and forgiveness and reconciliation to everyone who hears. And finally, oh, Father, if there be one here that knows nothing of Christ, that knows nothing of what it means to truly repent and receive the gift of of faith and be born again, I pray that today will be the day that they will come to faith in Christ, that they will experience the miracle of the new birth and be saved. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.